This is Meditations for Misfits, and I'm Fred Gruy. Welcome. In this week's podcast, we reflect on the parable of the sheep and the goats, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, and consider that this parable might give us a glimpse into the kind of motivation Jesus is looking for from his followers. The parable that uh, Hannah read to us this morning is the last parable attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and may well be the last parable Jesus told before his death. And uh, if you were with us over the summer, we looked at a lot of the different parables. I avoided this one like the plague, but it has come back through our lectionary to bite me in the you-know-what. And so we have this story of the sheep and the goats that has traditionally been used by folks that stand in a place like this and make people feel really, really bad to try to get them to do whatever the preacher thinks they should do. And I'm going to try to not do that this morning. Now, when we looked at the parables this summer, I referenced quite frequently... <clears throat> that my go-to theologian for help in uh, decoding the parables of Jesus is a man named Robert Farrar Capon. And in his uh, reflection on this particular parable, Capon says the separation imagery in the parables, that's separate between those that are left outside the parties and the banquets with there's wailing and gnashing of teeth and those that get to come inside, those separating things, he says, is a tricky piece of business. For my money, Capon says, it should not be interpreted in a way that portrays Jesus as having taken off the velvet gloves of grace and put on brass knuckles. Above all, it should not be read in this parable as turning the good shepherd into the great wolf. I think that's a, a, a good uh, caveat as we begin to explore what it is in this story that Jesus may have had in mind as he communicated it. Now, I know there's a lot of hell language in here where the demons and the devil and there's eternal fire and all that. I know many preachers have said that's reality, and if you don't behave, you're going to end up there. I would suggest there's other ways to read that, and I'm going to offer mine, realizing that there's a lot of people that would say I'm crazy. I'm used to hearing that. <laughs> but I, I think, look, Jesus was very much in line with the Jewish prophet prophets that came before him, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, Amos, Jonah. So there, were, there was this lineage of Jewish prophetic voices that were raised up to speak on God's behalf. And I believe Jesus was very much in that lineage. And they had a particular language style they used, which was very much uh, embraced hyperbole. So if you read the ancient Jewish prophets, it was not uncommon for them to say, this was really bad. It was so bad the stars fell from the sky and the sun stopped shining and the earth shook. 
Well, that stuff literally didn't happen. It was their way of communicating, this is bad. This is really, really bad. So th that's the language they used. And I think some of the things Jesus has said in this parable are very much of that hyperbolic uh, language. That's my take. But I want to look more, and we'll get back to that towards the end, to, to give, I, I think, some more unpacking of what that language might mean. But in the story, as it's related to us, uh, the king, and I want to make this clear, does not say, give the sheep entrance into the banquet, the party, or the good life, the realm of God, as it's described here. Does not, they don't get entrance into that because they compiled a splendid moral record. That, but what gave them admittance or entrance into the realm of God was that they had relationship with the shepherd who became the king. Whatever they did, they did unto Jesus. Now, it's the relationship that's important here, I think, in this story. Very important. In fact, I've shared with you on numerous occasions since I've been here in the last year that as I have read the book, the Bible, there is nothing more important to this being we call God than relationships. That is the most important thing in the Bible. Relationships with each other and relationships with God. There's nothing that trumps that. There's nothing more important than that and the whole Bible. So that's a really important thing. Now, Marcus Borg, who is a more modern theologian, he died about 10 years ago, but Borg has written, you can keep the commandments and still be a jerk, but you cannot be in relationship with the divine presence without being continually transformed. And I think that's the heart of what this parable is about. It's about being in relationship with the divine other and we're constantly being transformed. Because here's, here's the deal. In the story, as Jesus gives it to us, neither the sheep or the goats had any idea what they were doing. They were both clueless. The sheep didn't know they were visiting when they visited the prisoners or they visited the sick or they helped the poor. They didn't know they were doing that for Jesus. They just did it because of something that had transpired inside them. And the goats didn't know they were not doing it. They didn't intentionally, well, that's Jesus and I'm not going to help him. They didn't, nobody knew. And one of the great things the parable teaches us is nobody knows. This is a good thing. We're all dumber than dirt. That's a good thing to know. And so here's what I'm going to suggest. I have been harping now, haranguing for the last two weeks that to be a real follower of Jesus, what it means is to do what Jesus said to do, to live as Jesus taught us to live. That's what a real follower, it's not what we think or what we believe or what we think we know. It's not a creed or a doctrine, it's how we actually live that makes somebody in relationship with Jesus or, or know who Jesus is, a follower of Jesus. This parable to me speaks to the motivation of why we do that. 
because the sheep didn't go visit the prisoners and the sick and help the poor because they were trying to earn God's favor. They didn't know what they were doing. They just did what came naturally because of something that had transpired inside them. And that's what I'm suggesting the motivation for doing the... We don't do these kinds of things. We don't help the fuel, uh, Jackson County Fuel Commission, because, well, we got to make God happy. Oh, that's what God wants us to do. Or we don't give to the Good Samaritan Fund or help the food bank. Oh, we got to do that because we're supposed to be Christians and that's what Christians are. That's not it. We do it because there's just no other way to live, no other way to be. It's a natural byproduct of something that has happened inside. That's what I'm suggesting. It's living in such a way as we give evidence to the trust that we are loved by God and that God loves everybody. It's just what you do. When you know you're loved by God, that's just what you do. You don't try to do it, it's just... That's what happens. And there have been many spiritual teachers and leaders and wise voices over the centuries that have had an experience with this divine other that we name God that has so revolutionized them from the inside out that they behaved like the sheep behave in the parable. I'll reference one for Thomas Merton, my great hero. I love Tom. I'm a big Merton fan. Merton was a Catholic monk who had a wild, younger life and had an experience, became a Catholic and went off to a monastery to try to make himself holy. And so for 10 years, he's living in this monastery, getting up at three in the morning, working like a dog out in the hot fields of Kentucky, sweating, hard work, going to bed at eight o'clock at night, chanting all day, trying to make himself holy. One day he's walking around Louisville, Kentucky, which was near the monastery where he lived. And all of a sudden, a light switch goes on. And boo! Merton saw all these people walking around. It's 4th and Walnut. Walnut has since changed the name from Walnut Street to Cassius Clay Boulevard. And uh, Merton sees all these human beings and realizes God loves them all passionately, deeply, wonderfully. And Merton just started to laugh out loud, realizing how stupid he had been for trying to make himself holy all these years and that God just loves everybody. And Merton literally cried out, thank God, thank God, I'm like the rest of human beings. In fact, I've been to this corner. They got a monument, a brass monument sitting there at 4th and Cassius Clay Boulevard in downtown Louisville, Kentucky. This is where Thomas Merton had his incredible experience. And it changed his life, changed what he wrote about, changed how he thought, changed everything. He's started to read a lot of Zen and Taoist and other things and just real, oh man, this is big. It's bigger than I thought. That's one example. I'll give you one from my own life. I was a freshman in college at West Virginia University. I grew up Catholic, by the way, if you didn't know. And so I, I was a Catholic kid. I was 19, pimply-faced, overweight, insecure, basic numbskull teenage boy trying to find where do I fit in the world? You know, how do you, what do you do? What do you do? So I was on this retreat, a Catholic retreat. And I, in all honesty, I was not having a good time. 
I, I went there just to meet some girls. I was, <laughs> and, and so this retreat was people talking about how good God is and how wonderful God is, and then they would break you up into discussion groups where they would force you into personal sharing, you know, like which was terrifying, and I hated that. It was like forced group therapy, and I oh, it was weird. I wanted, and I wanted to leave. I wanted no part of it. And they were on the Sunday of the Feast of Christ the King, which this is in the church calendar, the last Sunday before Advent. It was about two o'clock in the afternoon. They were getting ready for one of these idiot discussion group things. And the priest saw that I was squirming, and he said, you want to go to the chapel to pray? I said, will that get me out of this discussion group thing? He said, yeah. I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that. So we're heading to the chapel to pray, and then somebody grabbed the priest along the way. They wanted to talk to the priest. So the priest says, you, you just go in all by yourself. So I, I went in. So I came into the chapel. It was about this big, big as this one. And uh, on the altar, they have a box called a tabernacle where Catholics keep the communion wafers where they believe the presence of Jesus is. So that's like really important. And so I just sort of laid down comfortably, sitting there waiting for this priest to come in and I'm just thinking and doing nothing. And, and I just looked up at the box and it was like a light switch just went on inside. All of a sudden, I just knew there really is a God. And this God really, really loves me. As fat and erotic and pimply-faced and crazy as I am. And that was like, stunned me. I mean, I was stunned. And I'm sitting there, can it be? And, and then I felt like my head was peeled back like a sardine tin. And liquid love just started pouring into me. And I'm sitting on this floor, and I'm shaking, and I'm feeling all this love like just pour into me. And I'm crying, and it was like, what is this? And at that moment, the priest walked in the chapel, and he sees me. He goes, what's going on? <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. He said, why don't you pray out loud so I can hear you? Know? <laughs> And so I just stammered out some kind of a prayer. But that moment, that one moment, was and is the absolute defining moment of my entire life. Nothing comes close to that one moment. Now, why did it happen? I have no idea. And I certainly do not believe in any way, shape, or form it's because I'm somehow special or better than anybody else or I did something to make that happen? I have no clue. But all I know is from that moment, I have viewed myself and everybody else on this planet differently. That we're just all in this together. We're all scared. We're all just trying to do the best we can. And it has motivated how I, that's why I became a hospice chaplain and traveled with 3,000 folks that died. I wasn't trying to make God happy. I wasn't trying to, to do something for Jesus. I just don't know how else to be. When people are suffering or hurting, when something like that's happened to you, you just got to help. Because you realize we're all in this together. It's what the great Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Hanh calls interbeing, 
where you, you realize the interconnectedness of us all. We're just in this together. It doesn't matter what religion you are, how old you are, whether you went to school or not, what color your skin is. It doesn't matter how much you know or don't know, how much you make, you don't make. It doesn't matter. We're just all in this. And this one that we call God loves us all. And so when somebody's hurting, you just help. That's what you do. It's, it's not to earn anything or make something good happen. You just don't know what else to do. Now, we forget that, and I'll be honest with you, when my buttons get pushed, I can be just as jerky as anybody else. And those that know me know that's very true, and I can. And so we remind each other, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's this one that loves us. And so how are we going to be? How can, we, how can we turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to somebody that's hurting? Because we've been loved. We've been given so much. Now, some of us here have had experiences like I just described. I know, because you've told me. And some of us haven't. And I don't think that makes you, if you haven't, it's not because you're a spiritual mutant or you did something bad or wrong or you're inferior in any way whatsoever. Look, I don't know. And some of us were just born, came out of the womb incredibly grateful and have been kind and loving all of our lives because that's just what you do when you're human. Some of us just clued in from the minute their butt got slapped by a doctor. I don't know. I just know this is the way to be. As I read this story, there's two options here. We can live in fear or we can live out of love because the goats operated out of fear. There's not enough. I've got to hold on to what I've got. I've got to take care of mine because it's a bad world out there and I may not have enough. And so the goats are living out of fear, a fear-based mentality. And I would suggest to you, they're already in hell. When you're living in fear, total fear, not going to be enough, not going to be enough, I got it, I got it. I, when, it's a, when we view the world as a rat race and only the rats are win, when that's all, you're already in hell. But if you're operating out of love, realizing I'm loved, you're loved, we're all loved, and that doesn't mean that God enjoys all the behavior we do, but we're already accepted in love. It liberates me to go be as good as I can be. It just comes naturally. And that's the choice that this parable offers to us. Do we want to live a fear-based life or a love-based life? And we're in this together to remind each other when we start acting too goatish. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're sheep, we're not goats. Wake up, wake up. And we get back to doing what we should be doing. That's, that's how I, I read these words. That's the option before us. It's just what comes naturally when you have some kind of relationship with this divine other. So whether you have a, a religious experience like I had, or whether you're like the great Zen teacher Basho, who heard a frog plop on a pond in a lily pad, woke him up, oh, whoa, that's what this is, and had his great awakening. Look, I don't know, maybe it's when your child was born and you held your child or you, you saw a sunrise that just, oh my goodness, this is incredible.
Whatever that is, connect to that. And let's encourage each other to live out of love and not out of fear. That's what I hear this parable teaching us.